Hey there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. This episode, we welcome back to the podcast guest co-pilot Paul Lange. Paul, it's good to have you back, man. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here, man. <laughs> Great. So on this episode, we're going to yap about The Who's 1971 album, Who's Next? Paul, how'd you discover The Who and this album in particular? Uh, I guess this album's an all-time favorite of mine. I was first introduced to The Who as a young kid, like maybe preschool age. Um, my dad was a big Who fan, and I remember loving the song Boris the Spider. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's uh, an end whistle song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because I don't like the end whistle song in this album. Uh, I also remember wanting to be Keith Moon. I used to play on a Smurf drum set. Uh, Did I you know say I, Smurf? Drum Smurf, drum? yeah. <laughs> Smurfs. Like it was blue and it had like white drum heads. Yeah. Wow. It was like plastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I had, no, I had no idea he was already dead. So my dad had a copy of this album and so did my mom. So it got frequent play in my house. Uh, many of the songs were played on classic rock radio, so I heard them in the car with my dad all the time, and he would tell me stories about the Who. Um, and he always used this terrible Who joke. He would say, "Paul, who's this band playing?" Yeah. And I would say, "The oh, Who." He goes, yeah. "No, I'm asking you." Yeah. Oh, <laughs> dad jokes one oh, one, right? Terrible, terrible dad <laughs> joke. But I still I use it on my kids today. Yeah, so. sure, sure. Excellent. The tradition continues. Oh, you're passing it on. Yeah, pass Good it on, on you. Good pass on you. It on. <laughs> uh, so and then when I was a teenager in the 90s I, I really fell in love with this album because I could like, understand it more and I could appreciate it more um, so uh, that's kind of that's kind of where I come from alright Ray how about you actually I think the first time I remember hearing the Who, who I didn't even know it was the Who at the time was uh they had that hit with You Better, You Better, You Bet. Wow. And so, later on. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah. Well, I think I was probably first grade or kindergarten when that came yeah, out. And, yeah. Uh, I liked that song at the time, but then they just, like, totally disappeared on my radar. I mean, you'd always hear about them in, like, in terms of the British invasion. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think maybe right around eighth grade, going to ninth grade, I started listening to, like, Rock 102 and more classic rock radio. And actually... I think in 88, there was like a reunion tour. There was like a, an, an ad on TV. I think Miller Lite when they were still doing Miller Lite ads. Yeah. And then Adam, you saw this bus come by and they're playing Magic Bus and you see this hand come out with a smashed guitar. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, then the Who is on tour again. Nice. So, um, yeah, and then like after that, it was more, this is actually the first time, no, not the first time. This is the first time I listened to this, well, yeah, I've listened to this album in its entirety. I, okay. I was never like really a super Who fan. Most of my exposure to the Who, like I said, came from my classic rock radio. So up till maybe like, maybe last year sometime, I listened to Tommy for the first time. And wow. I was pretty impressed, I've got to say, all in all. All right. I covered the album Who by Numbers way back in episode 16 of the podcast, so I'll make this quick. I first heard The Who because my dad had the album Quadrophenia, and they were a band I always liked, but I never got around to fully exploring until I got their CD box set. I think it was called 30 Years of Maximum R&B, and that led me to start collecting the individual records. I do remember the first two CDs I got were Tommy and Who's Next, because they were the ones I was most familiar with. They had the songs on it that I knew, and very soon after, I became a massive Who fan, which I still am to this day. So let me regale you with some basic facts about this record. And because accuracy is of the utmost importance to me, I get my facts from Wikipedia. <laughs> Who's Next is the fifth studio album by English rock band The Who, released on August 14th, 1971 in the U.S. on Decca Records, and on August 25th, 1971 in the U.K. on Track Records. It was produced by The Who, with associate producer Glenn Johns and executive producers Chris Stamp, Kit Lambert, and Pete Cameron. 
and was recorded from April to June 1971 at Olympic Studios London, England, as well as one track being recorded at Stargroves, East Woodhay, England, with Rolling Stones Mobile Studio and mixed at Island Studios London, England. Whew. It reached number one on the UK Albums Chart and number four on the US Billboard 200 Chart and is certified platinum by the BPI and four times platinum by the RIAA. Next, here's the band's lineup card. We've got Roger Daltrey on vocals, John Entwistle on bass, brass, vocals, and piano, Keith Moon on drums and percussion, and Pete Townsend on guitar, VCS3, organ, ARP synthesizer, vocals, and piano. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. All right, fellows, let's dig into a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. We kick things off with Baba O'Reilly, written by Pete Townsend. Paul, what do you think about this one? The first of the of at least three quintessential Who songs on this album. Uh, I think it absolutely rocks. Lyrically, there's a lot in this album that uh, tied into that Lifehouse project, mm -hmm. uh, which was a follow-up rock opera movie to Tommy. It was supposed to be about this futuristic utopia sort of thing, but people were still alienated and music may save them. Something like that is what I gathered from what I read. But Townsend once said that the meaning of life is a musical note, so that was kind of his idea that they would save the world with music. Uh, but he gave up on the whole movie idea eventually when it was not working out and they just made the album. So that's why lyrics like Teenage Wasteland seem strange. But it's not like, yeah, let's get stoned. It's really like how the environment that people live in has affected them and they are just laying the waste and are doing nothing about it. The synthesizer intro is impossible to replicate, so they play it by tape in concert, which the band really hates because it restricts their freedom. Uh, the synthesizer's rhythm is probably one of the first times in rock history it kind of started a fad or popularized it. Uh, but the synthesizer in this one it, and a few others is just beautiful, and I'm amazed that I don't hate it out of principle. <laughs> Daltrey said he hates how the synthesizer replaces the guitar in this album because Townsend is a great guitarist. I really like the violin. I forget who played it. I didn't write it down. Daltrey plays harmonica live instead of the violin, though, which is also pretty cool. Interesting that it was originally a 30-minute song for Lifehouse, which they edited down to the album. Take that, St. Anger. Yeah. <laughs> Ray, what do you think? Um, well, I didn't want to correct you, but the song is actually called Teenage Wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of those idiots who, for years, like, yeah, dude, fucking Teenage Wasteland. Yeah. I love that song. Well, everybody thinks, still thinks that's what it's oh, called. Oh, yeah, 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 no. Who yeah. the fuck is Bob O'Reilly? What the fuck's that all about? <laughs> um... I listened to this song, and I didn't even realize what year it was released until I did a little research on the album. And I think, man, back in 1971, okay, the, the Moog synthesizer came out in the 60s, right? That's when yeah. they had Aaron Bach came on. That was a big thing. So, like, to somebody's ears in 1971, this had to sound like, whoa, whoa. I can only imagine. What is the next What step is for this? Me? Yeah. yeah. And I think, actually, for the most part, I mean, it's kind of stood the test in time. It still kind of sounds really kind of futuristic in a sci fi kind of way. 
uh, without sounding too dated, which is uh, an accomplishment. The song is awesome. The violin section, I agree, is really an interesting choice for them to add. It's like almost like a mix of like hoedown with like gypsy yeah. <laughs> yeah. melody stuff in the back. It's almost more like a fiddle than a violin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. precisely. Yep. Um, and uh, speaking of like my supreme idiocy, I actually thought that this was a new Who song in 1988. <laughs> I didn't know. Like, I was associating all my Who information that time with the Miller Lite ad, which I had mentioned yeah. before. So I was like, oh, this song is great. This is like brand new. And then, like years later, I found out down there, no, it's not brand yeah. new, man. You're an idiot. <laughs> but uh, this is, uh, if you're going to open an album, what a great choice to open an album with. Yep. For sure. Yeah, Teenage Wasteland was the original title of it, but then that title was given to another song that Pete developed. So the actual title of this comes from Meher Baba, Pete's spiritual guru, and Terry Riley, a minimalist experimental composer Pete admired. That mechanical sound at the beginning, it's actually a Lowry TBO-1 organ on a marimba repeat setting. It's supposedly Pete's way of transforming Meher Baba's spirit into music. Uh, whatever that is, it's cool <laughs> as fuck. Pete also plays the piano, emphasizing those famous chords while Keith does what Keith does. Even when he's playing a straight beat, he can't help but throw in a few extra notes, even when his fills are limited. John also keeps it restrained and tasteful, but for me, this is the album where Roger Daltrey fully blossoms as a rock singer. His voice is commanding and brimming with confidence, and he finally rises up to the level of his bandmates. Pete sings a bridge section, and it's so memorable. Don't cry, don't raise your eye, it's only a teenage wasteland. I mean, that's really memorable. This track was originally written for the Lifehouse Project, like we were saying, Paul, and the lyrics are about a Scottish married couple in a desolate future, leaving their farm and crossing the wasteland to get to London. It was also inspired by the teenagers Pete saw at Woodstock, strung out and desolate, like they had brain damage, that's what he said. The end of the song has that violin jig section played by Dave Arbus, and was supposedly arranged by Keith, at least it was his idea. Keith Moon arranged the <laughs> violins. It's weird and cool, and it speeds up with the rest of the track to the end. I love that, too. This was released as a single in some European countries, but not in the U.K. or U.S., but it's a staple of classic rock radio and one of the Who's great anthems. The next track is Bargain, written by Pete Townsend. To find you, I'm Paul, what do you think? To me, this is like a religious love song. Townsend's telling us to lose the ego. Kind of what you were saying before about like uh, Mayor Baba. You know, he was really kind of getting Townsend to think about other other ways of living other than yeah. just kind of you know being a party animal. That all the Eastern time. spirituality, right? Yeah, he really dove into it. So, um, so this song's really kind of a lot about that. Um, I love the mix of the acoustic and the electric guitars, and I kind of like that throughout the whole album. Moon's drumming sounds like a full-on marching band, but it's really just him. Um, <laughs> Entwistle is great on bass, too. You know, I just love hearing him in the background. And uh, Townsend would, would give them a, a basic skeleton of drum and bass, and he let Moon and Entwistle kind of do their thing with it, and I think it really worked great on, on most of the, you know, the Who's catalog. Well, sure, yeah. Well, he couldn't play like right, them. Right. So. Especially, <laughs> especially on this song. You know, yeah. I really like it. 
All right, Ray. This is a great hard rock song. I mean, you think of Pete Townsend, like, I mean, other musicians later on, like, made use of power chords and made them, you know, into what, you know, hard rock and heavy metal staples. But, like, you always think of him, like, I always think of him anyway, like, well, the forefathers of power chords. Sure. Really making them work. Yeah. Not even just power chords, just like some weird inverted chords that he did, too, which are kind of cool. I love listening to the keyboard section of this because I'm pretty sure the cars nicked it for uh, just what I needed. <laughs> and actually, there's a couple things that I heard that, like in the 70s, keyboard sounds from this album that other bands nicked. Yeah. Um, so I guess that kind of says something from, you know, for Pete Townsend. Um, and listen, speaking of the rhythm section, this rhythm section is probably one of my favorite rhythm sections of all time. Next yeah. to Led Zeppelin. Um, and speaking of Zeppelin, you can hear how like Bonzo got a lot. Keith Moon. He mm-hmm. always like credited him for being like a huge influence on him, and it's, this is like phew, you can hear it exactly, especially on this track. Yeah. So. Yeah, this is another popular radio song. This one sounds more of a traditional Who song than the first one. Keith's playing some busy fills. John doing his thing with more complicated bass lines, just like you were talking about, Paul. Pete plays some acoustic guitar in the beginning, giving way to hard rocking licks, and then there's an ARP synthesizer present that occasionally comes to the fore, and it makes its presence felt, including a solo toward the end of the track that makes it feel almost kind of spacey as the music gets faster and more intense. Roger sings the verses that have a similar vibe to my ears as it won't get fooled again, just the feel of it, which we're going to talk about that one later, and I dig the whole, I call that a bargain, the best I ever had part that Roger belts out, never had, you know, that, that echoing thing, I love that. Pete again sings the gentle bridge with just acoustic guitar and John's bass, and it changes the whole feel of the tune briefly before Keith rocks it back in again. Lyrically, it's a love song to God, according to Pete, inspired by Meher Baba, and the narrator is willing to give up everything he has to be at one with God. I'd gladly lose me to find you. I think that's a great line. I think that came directly from Meher Baba. And to attain that would be a bargain. I dig this tune. It's dynamic, and it shows off the band's abilities to a T. Uh, you said it kind of like uh, kind of goes back to or references a little bit. Uh, Won't get fooled again. Yeah, like it was originally supposed to be this opera, right? So I think yes. quite a few of the songs kind of reflect back on each other. Yeah, like like Tommy. Tommy yeah. does that so too. Okay, a lot of songs they reference each other. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, yeah that and, and Quadrophenia. Cool. Oh wow! Yeah, there's, they, there's a lot of callbacks, and you know, mm-hmm. it, it was designed to be a well, they call it a rock opera, but it's basically a song cycle. Is actually what it is, uh, a concept album. Yeah, you know, right so. The following track is Love Ain't For Keeping, written by Pete Townsend. thoughts so this is the shorter song on an album and it's this folky acoustic style or maybe this country bluesy number i don't know but moon backs off on the drums a bit uh he actually uses a different drum kit than usual but he's still present the song seems to be about how love should be shared there's a short-term nature of things uh there's a hard rock version that they released later on as well which yeah, have is, you heard it i have it's yeah. Pretty good. yeah 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 yep and they usually use that in concert, actually. I think. They opened with it on that yeah. tour. Yeah, on the 71 tour, they opened with this. But they rocked up, not yeah. not acoustic like this. Was there... Was Leslie, Leslie West on the electric? Yes. Dude, I listened to... Uh, 
I can you know I can chipmunk this at one point, but I listened to this on the re-release of this album. They have like all twenty-seven tracks. Yes. And the next song has Leslie West playing solo in the background. And I didn't figure that out tonight. That it was Leslie West. I'm thinking, yeah. holy crap! I got to go back to get some Mountain now. Yeah. Because <laughs> Mountain isn't they, bad. Yeah. No. I mean, they did. I mean, I'll, I mean, we're truth be told, I knew it was Mississippi. Well, that's Queen, all anybody. So, really yeah. Knows, yeah. But, but yeah. No. No. They're, they're, they're solid. Yeah. yeah that is a great song. I have um, a record that's the best of Mountain. Yeah. Um, nice. It's a hand me down for my dad. Yeah. Nice. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah, Mountain's pretty good. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Pete Townsend uh, is a great acoustic player, and this is, for me, was really refreshing. I mean, yeah, you hear his acoustic playing on, um, or like even on some parts of Pinball Wizard and, yeah. and, and, like, you know, Behind Blue Eyes. But, like, listening to this, I think he's actually a really underrated acoustic player. Like, mm. I would almost say he's on par with Jimmy Page. Mm. Um, especially, like, that ending lick that he plays at the end. Now, Townsend himself, like, when I think of British rock guitarists, I don't think of him as like you know your Jeff Becker, Eric Clapton right. kind of shredding, not yeah. shredding, but you know taking the lead, the like blues, virtuoso, yeah. like virtuoso, not yeah. by any means. No. But I almost get the impression that he actually knew a lot more than he let on to. Hmm. Outside of just what he could do with just bashing the ever-loving piss out of power chords, yeah, <laughs> you know. So this for me was awesome. I was my question is why wasn't this a single? Yeah, this is like a perfect. Lengthwise and everything else, and it's a great song too. So what yeah. what their decision making process was yeah. at the time, I'd really like to see. And then once again, John Entwistle's really filled up so much space. Kind of like when we did uh, Badland with Greg Jason. Yeah, another guy who fills a lot more space than you expect. You know, your typical root, root fifth thumpers. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that, but um, wow, man, the guy was just an amazing musician. Yeah. yeah. It's got the folk rock or country rock vibe with multi-tracked acoustic guitars, and it's got a bouncy rhythm to it. Excellent backing vocals that the Who are always known for. John's bass kind of snakes around the guitars, like you were saying, filling the space. Again, like Paul said, Keith holds back on the drums. Very unusual for him. Lyrically, very simple. A song of contentment and enjoying the simple pleasures of life, sharing your physical and emotional love, and not keeping it only to yourself. It's not a major track, but I've always had a soft spot for it. I really like it. It originally was a harder rock song, like we said. It was written for Lifehouse with synthesizers and a guitar solo by Mountain's Leslie West, which you can hear on the expanded version of the compilation album Odds and Sods. And I think the, uh, what's it, bonus track or extended? Uh, like the reissue? Yeah, the reissue of this. It's on there too. I think you said that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a nice little track. I've always loved it. Mm -hmm. The next track is My Wife, written by John Entwistle. So this is uh, John Entwistle's main contribution to the album. Uh, he even sings. There's no Daltrey on this track. They asked him if he had anything to add to the album, and this was left over from a solo record. It's kind of a funny song about staying out drinking and pissing off his wife. <laughs> um, always remember, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> yep. um, so the pace here never backs off. Uh, it's pretty. The pace is pretty similar throughout the whole song, whereas most of the songs in this album have a, a change in dynamics. There are horns in place of the solo. It's different, and I usually love songs written by band members who aren't the main writers. 
but this is one of my least favorite of the album. All right. Ray. Wow, I didn't even know that was uh, John singing. Yeah. But that's cool, because one of the first things I noticed, like, I love the vocal melody for this, how it kind of bounces all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only bounces all over, but just the, the way it moves throughout the song. This is a, a great hard rock song. The horn section is awesome, I think. I like how there's like almost like a droning feedback, and it sounds like a, maybe even a Barry sax underneath. Yeah. And that gets answered kind of in the higher, by the uh, kind of brassier sounding trumpets. Yep, and I played like by the, John. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yep. dude, man, this guy's definitely... Definitely one of my heroes now. Yep. I just really miss horn sections too. I mean, like it's somewhere along the lines, you know, it didn't have to turn like the cheesy eighty saxophone solos. But yeah. when you when rock and roll was still rock and roll before it like got hair on its nuts and became rock, you could still have a horn section sound cool in the context of a rock song without yeah. sounding like a total fromage fest. Yeah. Case in point, this song. Yeah, so, these British bands need to do it better yeah. too. Yeah, oh for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I actually like it's one of my favorites on the channel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Ox takes center stage on lead vocals, bass, piano, and brass parts. And this is the only track on the record that wasn't written for the Lifehouse sessions. It's hard rocking. The piano bangs along with it. Keith gets to show off some of his loose, busy fills. John always got a song or two on each Who album, and his material was always a little different, and often highlighted his dark sense of humor, and this certainly does that. Lyrically, on this tune, John got hammered and was thrown in the drunk tank, but when he gets out, he goes on the run because he's afraid his wife will kill him because he didn't come home last night, and she'll think he's sleeping around on her. He's going to buy a tank, an aeroplane, a fast car, whatever it'll take to get away from her. I like John's voice, so it doesn't have the distinctive quality of a Roger or even Pete. But the brass parts he plays kind of accentuate the absurdity of the lyrics, and they're really good. I've always liked this song, and I see it as the record's kind of comic relief. The following track is The Song Is Over, written by Pete Townsend. Our love is over They're all ahead now I've got to learn it I'm gonna sing out Paul, what do you think? This one starts off as a ballad about a disappointing end to a relationship. The singer feels left behind. Maybe it was even his fault. That's Townsend singing. But then Dolce comes in, and the music picks up, and he's ready to move on. It kind of turns into this jazzy number with piano that Billy Joel would appreciate. Mm. Although I kind of hate Billy Joel. Oh, yeah. say it ain't so. Not, not, not a big Billy Joel fan. Oh, uh, fooey. Well, you're not coming on that episode. Or maybe we should. I don't want you to force me to listen to the song. And now for the opposing That would be fun. Yeah, yeah. And maybe, maybe we should have you on. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> That's all I got all right. for that one. Ray. Um, once again, we're talking about making keyboard songs. There's a song on Rush's Moving Pictures, somewhere between Limelight and um, uh, Witch Hunt. It starts off, I'll talk about running through uh, the streets of New York City. Total blank. With the big long one? Yeah. With the camera eye or something like that? Maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. So right after uh, Now you're making me forget. <laughs> yeah. Shit. I'll have to look that one. But yeah, I heard like the, that in the intro to the song. And I was like, dude, this is Rush totally took this. Mm. <laughs> so once again, uh, they owe they owe us a little bit of intellectual property money. <laughs> Nikki fucking Hopkins, man. The piano section for this is awesome. But the song has a real 
anthemic buildup and a lot of modulations in it, which I think the, the band didn't get a lot of credit for. Like, even in some of their other tracks, like, uh, even the Pinball Wizard, there's some, like, weird little modulations in it, too. And mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't just your standard, we're picking one key, this is the one chord, four chord, and five chord, and nobody really should stray out of that. They, yeah. they, they didn't take, didn't let that restrict them. Yeah, they were definitely them. dynamic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which a lot of younger bands could take note of. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I got. This was a key track to the Lifehouse, as it was written to be the final song of the cycle, and it carried a lot of importance. It's a big dramatic ballad with Nicky Hopkins playing some gorgeous piano, and Pete adding these synth lines that follow the piano but don't overpower it. It's meant to augment the chord progression. That's what you were talking about with the Rush. Yeah, right? that's, yeah. That the synth sound there. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, okay. Now, when you first were telling me, what the hell is he talking about? Oh, the synth. I hate synthesizer rush, by the way. <laughs> in the A sections in the bridge, Pete sings lead, and his voice is kind of sad and wistful. He's lamenting that the song's over, and he feels the loss of the music as a unifying spiritual force. Then in the B section, Roger takes over on vocals, and the track kind of opens up. It becomes grandiose, and the lyrics show that, no, the song continues on as long as the singer is willing to sing it, and it becomes more open, universal, and infinite. It reminds me a little bit of We're Not Gonna Take It from Tommy, that album's final track after the See Me, Feel Me part, that the climax of both of these songs reveal a hopeful future and looking ahead to brighter days. Roger's voice is fucking majestic on this, and it's an amazing performance. As the track fades, there's Keith cutting loose a bit on the drums and a faint echoed line from the song Pure and Easy, which didn't make it on this album, but it was another important track to Lifehouse, the search for a perfect note that would open up spiritual avenues and bring people together, highbrow conceptual stuff. This track really does move me and I dig the shit out of it. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Getting In Tune, written by Pete Townsend. I can't pretend there's any meaning hidden in the things I'm saying, but I'm in tune, right in tune. Paul, let's have it. Uh, this song really feels to me like a, like a Beatles tune. Uh, there's this piano intro that kind of sounds a little Beatlesque, and the rest of it sounds like a McCartney Beatles tune. Even the outro, where everyone just kind of rocks out, seems like the Beatles to me. The chorus rocks, and it's one of those that you have to sing along to. Right in on you. I love that. Yeah, like, yeah, that's cool. Ray? Once again, Mr. Nicky Hopkins bringing it in. <laughs> There's nothing like that. Yep. Um, I like this song. and I can actually hear some of the DNA of this song in some of Aerosmith's 70s stuff. Especially mm. the chord progression underneath the tuning in right on you part you can definitely hear like their influence on like bands like Aerosmith and that's one thing I got out of this album is like how much their stuff just kind of spread out to other bands yeah and I had a greater deeper appreciation for it especially on songs like this yeah this track's interesting because it's got many shifts in sections tempos and dynamics Nicky Hopkins back on piano. What he plays kind of follows along with the flow of the music, whether it's a quiet passage in the verse sections or a banging honky-tonk style as the song speeds up towards the end. John Entwistle shows off his fluid, non-linear bass work, and it's a great example of his style. The bass line moves all over the place. It's how he plays. 
Pete hangs back and plays his chords, and the guitar almost takes a back seat on this track. Roger brings it again with great vocals, and the lyrics reflect the unifying power of music, as well as betraying a sort of contradictory crisis Pete was having, trying to reconcile his spiritual self-discovery he was pursuing with the real-world trappings of being a rock star. The narrator's got to get attuned <laughs> to all these aspects of his persona, all heavy themes from Lifehouse. I dig the pickup and tempo at the end as Keith gets to let it rip a bit, as well as Nicky Hopkins really pounding away on the keys. I dig this tune, but there's got to be a least favorite on this album, and I guess this is it. So, uh-oh, this is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. That's a terrible choice. The next track is Going Mobile, written by Pete Townsend. have it. Alright, this is another track without Daltrey. Uh, the song was cut live. You can really feel the Who live energy with this song. The pace is like a road trip. Um, I also feel like it's the Who saying, hey Eagles, we can do you better than you. <laughs> yeah, they could. I hate the fucking Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good Big Lebowski moment. Yeah. <laughs> we'll bring you on that one too. Yeah. <laughs> one of these nights... One of these crazy, crazy nights. We'll get on that one. <laughs> so the song here is about freedom. There's a theme there of uh, Dan the Man as well. Like when he's dodging a tax man and, and getting away from the cops. So. Yep. Right? Oh. So I didn't know it was. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I didn't realize. Like I, I was about to bag on Daltrey for this song. But I wasn't aware that it was Pete singing. I actually do like the music. Uh, the bass, the, the rhythm section just gets to like, kind of go off, and the guitar's fine. But them fucking vocals. <laughs> fucking. Okay, you know what it reminds me of is Can Heat. Take a ride in the country, don't you want? Oh, oh no. It's not that bad. And that song makes me, just wants to, makes me want to drink fucking Drano. So, like, when I hear this, man, I just kind of. I inwardly cringe. I'm going to have to say, this is Ray's unimpressed musical pick. Whoa. Yeah, it's the Who Has Three piece. It's all Pete on vocals, guitars, and synths, John's bass, and Keith's drums. There's jangly acoustic guitars, and the electric guitars played through an envelope follower, a synth feature that gives the guitar that weird sound that Pete described as a fuzzy wah-wah, and I think that's pretty accurate. Hmm. The rhythm section does what only these two guys could do together. If you listen to them individually, you think, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> They're not playing right. It's all over the place. But when it's put together, it fits perfectly, and it's just like, wow, they fucking do that. This has a light, bouncy feel, and Pete sings it like he doesn't have a care in the world. Hee-hee! Beep-beep! <laughs> <laughs> Lyrically, the narrator got himself a mobile home, and it's discovering the joys of travel in a society where people are not allowed to do that. And that's why Pete sounds so happy. It's another Lifehouse track. I love the bridge section, I'm an air-conditioned gypsy. I love that line. This song is not a favorite, but I do like how it has such an upbeat feel to it. The penultimate track is Behind Blue Eyes, written by Pete Townsend. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. 
to be the sad man behind the blue eyes no one knows what it's like to be hated to be faded to telling only lies but my dreams they are Paul laid on us all right, this is another one of the quintessential Who songs on this album. It also happens to be my favorite track on the album, and probably my favorite Who song altogether. I played the hell out of this one when I was a kid. In the Lifehouse story, this one is sung by the villain and how he is misunderstood. He feels good, but is seen as bad. He can't share his feelings or show any weakness. Townsend said it's about control, especially of the fight response, anger, pain, and frustration. It's teen angst before Nirvana. Townsend also said it's about repression of love and a perversion of love that became vengeful. He wrote it after rejecting a groupie because he was trying to live this simplistic religious life. He also claims to sing it differently than Daltrey when he sings it live, and that kind of changes the meaning to some of those themes. Um, it's the same lyrics, just his tone is what he says. What he brings different. to it? Yeah, what mm. he brings to it. I've never heard Pete sing it. Mm. I've seen, like, there's a great acoustic version. YouTube it with Pete singing. Yeah, oh yeah, and it's it sounds different than Roger. Yeah, I don't think so. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> but he says it is. <laughs> right. yeah. no, it, it means different. I mean, to it him. sounds like Pete, right? But yeah, it's yeah. The same. To me, yeah. It's, you know, yeah. But everything else is the same. So my favorite part is when the solo kicks in and then he starts to sing through his teeth or kind of like with a scowl. When my fist clenches, crack it open. I, I love that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, actually, along those same lines, yeah, the, the, when he gets to that growling rock voice, that's probably one of my favorite parts of the song, too. It's just really kind of cool and kind of drives home the lyrics. Actually, I had to, for, if you want a real laugh out there, listeners, go on to YouTube and look up my name. I had to sing a song in, for a clinical voice for music therapists when I was going for, to Anna Maria. And uh, <laughs> there's me. I looked this, what? <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I, I had to take voice lessons. I had to sing a song in Italian, and then I had to take this class. And they're like, "Play this song in your." And I'm not a fucking singer, man. I never wanted to be a singer, so I was like, "All right, I can kind of warble this song along." So go on there, and there's me, a middle-aged man, trying to sing and play this song. So get out there, viewers, and give me some good thumbs down on YouTube because God knows I could use it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Townsend guitar playing on there once again great playing and I'll go back to what I said on the other one of the other reviews like his, he's a really great acoustic guitar player and Limp Biscuit Limp Biscuit almost fucking ruined this song for me oh, I didn't even want to mention it yeah that was with the fucking speak and spell part in the middle of it you know and then like they had just gotten rid of Wes Borland not, and I'm not a Limp Biscuit fan by any means, but Borland did do some kind of interesting tapping things. They got the dude from Snot, and they put up this fucking steaming hunk of shit. And I was like, why? Why this mister? I guess all I got more for that is for the vocal harmonies. I think, Aaron, you mentioned their vocal harmonies in the oh, back. Yeah. And I never really noticed their vocal harmonies for now, but it's got its own distinct kind of uh, thing. And I, I really, really like the who vocal harmonies. Originally, they were inspired by the Beach Boys. But, you oh, know, yeah. yeah, later on they developed into their own kind of thing. But, yeah, that's where it originally came from. Well, not, well that's good. Hey, yeah. I'm, not, oh, yeah. I'm not a huge Beach Boys fan, but I'm glad they got something from it and then yeah. turned into this. So. Yep. <laughs> 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 so that's what I got on Behind Blue Eyes. 
The arpeggiated acoustic guitar ushers in Roger's memorable vocal, No One Knows What It's Like to Be the Bad Man, to Be the Sad Man, Behind Blue Eyes. There's some excellent three-part harmony backing vocals between John, Pete, and Roger, and it adds to the pathos the character in the song feels. Like Paul said, this was originally written as a theme song for the villain in the Lifehouse story, a guy always full of anger and bitterness at the world that sees him as a bad guy, even though he doesn't see himself that way. I pull even more from them, though. I can definitely identify with the pain, anger, and loneliness of these lyrics, and I find them greatly affecting. I connect to them on a deep level. The melodies in this track are some of Pete's best and incredibly memorable. Keith Moon is nowhere to be found until 2.18 in, and then he makes the most of it with a classic Moon performance, just this side of sloppy, yet somehow always in time. You never know which notes he'll play and at what speed they're going to come at you. The whole song rocks up at this point, and the Who make a racket, and almost seems like they're competing with each other, but fuck, Roger again takes charge. When my fist clenches, crack it open. That entire section is just amazing to me. Roger puts real vulnerability in the vocals, and as the song winds down, you hear a piece of music that's also part of the next track that we're going to talk about, you know, dun, 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 that part of it. Then the acoustic guitar returns. Roger repeats the first verse to finish it up. It's a phenomenal track, and this is my second favorite Who song of all time. This was the second single released in the U.S., and it reached number 34 on the Billboard Hot 100, and last, motherfuck. Limp Biscuit. <laughs> Break something tonight! <laughs> and that brings us to the final track, Won't Get Fooled Again, written by Pete Townsend. You like this one? Love it. Fucking love the song. It's another obviously quintessential Who song. The synthesizer is sexy. I and I love the guitar fill between the lyrics. Townsend solo is awesome. It's Chuck Berry meets punk rock. I've always felt the Who were punk before there was punk. Uh, and when Daltrey screams "Yeah!" after the synth synthesizer solo, that's one of the greatest moments in rock history. I just wish I could have seen it live in person as opposed to on video. Hmm. The song is timeless in the sense that it captures the political times of both the 60s and 70s and as well as today. The song is about dystopia and how leadership can be dangerous. Even in revolution, there are consequences for our actions, and it begs the question, will anything really change? There's a betrayal in humanness in the sense that the Who started out with these ideals but then got rich. It happens to a lot of bands. In the Lifehouse sense of the theme, the song is about how music can save their lives and then need to join together and fight against the music being banned. Townsend said it's not about him. Don't make him the new boss. We are in charge. We need to go out from the concert and do something. Awesome. Ray? I gotta say that this song is a power chord orgy. <laughs> and <laughs> The kind you want to sit in on and have a nice long mustache and be like, oh... <laughs> Do you come here often? <laughs> no, but, but I, I love the, the guitar tone in this and the, the, the yeah. chords themselves. And uh, it's just, 
It's great. Uh, <laughs> does anybody remember the Van Hagar cover of this song? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's probably mm-hmm. one of the few Van Hagar songs I actually don't mind, and yeah. it wasn't written by them. Yeah. And they didn't do a horrible job on it, so I gotta I give them not. And I don't even know why I'm even bringing up Van Hagar. This isn't about Van Hagar. This is about. And he did the synth part on guitar too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. yeah, that is yeah. pretty cool. It's um, pretty cool. I like the descending bass line uh, John plays during the tip my hat part. That yes. I guess as far as the keyboard intro, the keyboard intro is pretty awesome. To hell with Robert Chris Gower, however the hell you say his name, who at first said this album was a great hard rock, one of the best hard rock albums of that decade, and then like, oh, they're like it has like the worst art rock trappings and endless keyboard noodling. Um, yeah, no, you can get bent, sir. Um, Screw that guy. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's like the song rock. And one way to go out to go out with this this song. You come in with an explosion, you go out with an explosion. It's pretty cool. Yep. Not only is this my favorite Who song, it's one of my favorite songs ever, period. This was recorded at Stargroves, Mick Jagger's house with the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio after a failed attempt to record it in New York. This is the only track not to be recorded at Olympic Studios. To symbolize the spiritual connection he felt for music through the works of his gurus, Pete programmed a series of human traits through an organ into a synthesizer, and it converted them into audio pulses that make up the electronic sounds you hear all throughout the track, but especially at the beginning and end. The rest of the band ferociously come in, and this song rocks hard as fuck. There's acoustic guitar buried under there, too, and John's bass is just bonkers. It feels like it's everywhere. Roger's delivery is authoritative, and he commands the song whenever he sings. The chorus is so good and shows that, yeah, we've seen this shit before. You're not going to put one past me this time. We don't get fooled again. I love the first break section with a simple riff. I love that. And the hand claps. <laughs> the lyrics speak out against revolutions or sweeping change in government. It warns you to keep your eyes open and be mistrustful. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> what feels like important change often turns out to be exactly the way it was before, if not worse. Pete put it like this, don't expect to see what you expect to see, expect nothing, and you might gain everything. Hmm. After some noodling by the band and soloing by Pete, the universal synth line returns up front and then plays by itself for roughly 50 seconds, and then it happens. If that's not the most electrifying moment in rock history, I don't know what is. And then, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Holy fuck, I love the unholy frig out of this track. What else can I say? A massively edited version of this was the first single from the album that reached number 9 on the UK singles chart and number 15 on the US Billboard Hot 100. Now that the track by track is done, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is platypus excrement. (laughs) So Paul, give us your final thoughts on who's next. Alright, this is one of those rare albums that you play all the way through, and every song gets radio play and couldn't even be a single. My dad used to say that the band Cream was a super group in which everyone was always soloing at the same time. But when you listen to The Who, you listen to Keith Moon and John Entwistle and Keith Townsend, and it's almost like they're always soloing too, especially on this album. The three quintessential Who songs are among the best songs in rock history. I give it a five. Nice. Right. Nice. 
let me just preface this by saying that, like, of course I was familiar with, like, you know, the, the, the classic rock. The big songs, songs, yeah. Yeah, and I liked them. I think, if anything, I might have suffered from a little bit of overexposure on them. Burnout? Which, yeah, which may be kind of tainting my view, and I'm going to say that, take that for what it is. Um, the songs I had never heard before, I really took to pretty quickly. So I'm going to give this one a four with potential for going up to a five pretty easy. This is a great all-in-all album. It gave me a new appreciation for the band. So go get this album. All right. Did you really not listen to this album until you... Never. No. Really? Until nope. preparing for this? Yeah. Really? Seriously. Wow. Hmm. As serious as penis cancer. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I had listened to it earlier. <laughs> By 1970, The Who had finally hit the big time and were finally making money after all those years of smashing their equipment and being in heavy debt. The rock opera Tommy and the subsequent tour were unqualified successes and the band was hitting its creative stride. But their environment had changed a bit, with their original mod audience more or less gone and their manager Kit Lambert drifting away from them, which particularly affected Pete Townsend. Pete was a seeker, a spiritualist, and his ambitions had grown to the point where the Who's next project was to be called Lifehouse, a multimedia project incorporating live performances and film into a rock opera that used audience participation to tell the story of a future society where music is banned and most people live indoors in government-controlled experience suits. A lone rebel broadcasts music into the suits and allows people to remove them and become enlightened. It was a massive concept in scope and complexity, and it proved too difficult to materialize, especially with the technology available in 1971. So Pete grudgingly aborted Lifehouse, causing him and the rest of the Who a great deal of stress and nearly breaking the band up. As an aside, Pete never fully gave up on Lifehouse, and many of its music and concepts have appeared throughout his career. Deciding to simply record a traditional follow-up album to Tommy, the Who recruited engineer-producer Glenn Johns, who took great care to get a good sound, and Pete rated the Lifehouse demos as the basis for the new record, including the use of then-newly-emerging synthesizer machines. When Who's Next was released, it was an immediate hit, and it contains some of the band's best-known and most revered songs. It's now regarded as the Who's greatest album, or at the very least one of them, and far be it from me to argue that. It's not my personally overall favorite Who album, but it's got my two favorite Who tracks, and it's an extremely strong record from top to bottom. It showcases each of the band members at the peak of their ability and confidence, and when you listen to it, you hear the sound of a band that knew it was at the top of its game. I give Who's Next a five, of course, and the years have done nothing to diminish it as one of the greatest albums in rock history. Now we'd like to thank Paul Lange for returning to the podcast and talking about Who with us. Who? Oh, that's who. <laughs> Paul, I hope you had a good time. Thanks, man. I did. All right, awesome. Great. great to meet you too, Ray. Oh, likewise, for sure. Come back, dude. I will. Can't All right. Wait. Cool, cool. Excellent. Excellent. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also recommend the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way, and yes, we'll read your Facebook recommendation on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Shoot us an email and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host a show with us, like Paul, and we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. 
Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Albumatics, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. We're going mobile. songs were played on classic rock radio so i heard them in the car with my dad all the time and he would tell me stories about the who and it he always had this terrible <laughs> time <laughs> sorry man we don't have to do the whole thing again but That's we just <laughs> he whispered sorry <laughs> 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 all right there we go the sound all phones are off yeah right, right, right. where should i let's go back to um your dad having this album all right you, you got you know where you are yeah you just start whenever you want all right can this Pete play the piano on that? On what? On uh, my wife? Nope. John. John does everything. Oh, wow. Except, Except for drums and guitar. Wow. Except for drums and guitar. Yeah, that, that's a total John that whistle tune. Holy crap. And his tunes are always like that. Every Who album you see is it's always like a wacky, like Boris the Spider. Yeah. Wacky, you know. He does he does uh, Cousin Kevin and I think uh, and uh, uh, Fiddle About and Tommy. Oh, no shit. whacked out songs on that and that album. He always, yeah. He's got a macabre sense of humor. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix claimed that was his favorite Who song. Oh, yeah. really? Do you know that? Or <laughs> Until I was, you know, a little older and heard this album a lot, that was my favorite. Yeah. I was a kid, right? Or <laughs> <Forest> the <laughs> Spider. <laughs> that, that gruff voice in yeah. his voice. Really, really groovy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dave. I did. Fuck you, Thousand.
Rosanna Arquette or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They got cut after like a half a season. Like I didn't even know there was one. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they did another who saw. What was it? I had to have. I can't remember right now. I'll have to look it up. I didn't even know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> CSI Cyber. Shit. It was another, it was another popular song. <laughs> you might have mentioned it earlier. Well, one of you did. Mm-hmm. No? You did when you were listening to Gimbal Wizard. songs that you like. No, not Gimbal oh, Wizard. Whose songs that you knew when you were a kid? Oh, you already uh, bet? No. Oh, wow. That's Magic right. Bus. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember that. <laughs> Fuck. I want it. I want it. I want it. I can see Kyle's. Oh, alright. Alright. Okay. Alright. That's a great one, too. Yeah. <laughs>
be the saddest.